It's 6 o'clock and you are listening to Community Radio. KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Friday, December 29th. I'm Julia Jem, and it's time for the KVMR News Magazine. Kelly Reese returns next week. Coming up in the next half hour, we'll hear from a National Weather Service meteorologist, learn how the Native people in our area prepare for winter in days past, and we'll close with an essay by Molly Fisk. But first, local news and the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Truckee, an emergency warming shelter is open for those experiencing homelessness. This time, it's in a new location under new management. This shelter replaces the emergency warming shelter run by North Tahoe Truckee Homeless Services, which was unable to open on November 1st due to staffing challenges. This shelter is at 10,075 Levon Avenue, which is the courthouse building. The shelter is run by Nevada County Health and Human Services, with support from North Tahoe Truckee Homeless Services, Placer County, Tahoe Forest Hospital, and the town of Truckee. It's open from 6 p.m. to 7.30 a.m. every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Additional shelter nights will open based on the following weather triggers— 15 degrees or less, more than one foot of forecasted snowfall, or other severe inclement weather. The warming shelter will serve not only Nevada County, but also Placer County residents experiencing homelessness. Placer County District 5 Supervisor Cindy Gastafson said, quote, We appreciate community-wide partnership as combined efforts to address homelessness are crucial in North Lake Tahoe. While eastern Placer County has thankfully seen low and decreasing levels of homelessness over the last five years, we are committed to continued support of shared solutions in the Tahoe region. For more information on the shelter schedule, you can call 530-807-8818. For information on additional homeless services in the Tahoe Truckee region, you can visit nttthomelessservices.com. Unsheltered residents of Placer and Nevada County may also contact Connecting Point 211 for linkage to important resources that can help with housing, rental assistance, hunger relief, and more. Here's a look at weekend weather from the National Weather Service. For Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, showers mainly after 7 p.m., patchy fog after 8 p.m. with a low around 42. Saturday, showers likely mainly before 9 a.m., patchy fog before 3 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy, with a high near 47. A 50% chance of showers on Saturday night, with patchy fog after 5 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy, with a low around 37. On Sunday, a 40% chance of showers, mostly cloudy, with a high near 48. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, rain and snow, mainly after 11 p.m. Snow level 7,200 feet, lowering to 6,400 feet after midnight. Low around 29 degrees. Saturday, snow, mainly before 11 a.m., high near 38. On Saturday night, a 30% chance of snow, mainly before 11 p.m. After 11 p.m., areas of freezing fog partly cloudy, with a low around 20 degrees. Sunday, a 30% chance of snow, mainly after 5 p.m., increasing clouds with a high near 37. And in Truckee, from 10 p.m. this evening to 4 p.m. on Saturday, the National Weather Service is issuing a winter weather advisory. Snow accumulations of 2 to 6 inches, with up to 12 inches above 7,500 feet elevation, are expected west of Highway 89. It'll be a mix of rain and snow in the Tahoe Basin at the storm onset, changing mostly to only snow on Saturday. 
Travel will deteriorate Friday night for Sierra Passes, with difficult travel throughout the Greater Tahoe region by Saturday morning. To be prepared, you can plan to slow down and use caution while traveling. The latest road conditions can be obtained by calling 511 or checking with Caltrans Quick Map. For Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, showers before 11 p.m., then showers and possibly a thunderstorm between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., and then showers again after 2 a.m. Patchy fog after 8 p.m., a low around 52. On Saturday, showers are likely before 11 a.m. and then again after 5 p.m. Widespread dense fog, mainly before 11 a.m., otherwise partly sunny, with a high near 59. Saturday night, a 30% chance of showers before 11 p.m., patchy fog after 5 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy, with a low around 46. On Sunday, a 20% chance of showers after 11 a.m., otherwise cloudy with a high near 55. For Placerville and Angels Camp, tonight, showers mainly after 9 p.m., the rain could be heavy at times, patchy fog after 10 p.m., low around 45 degrees. On Saturday, showers likely mainly before 9 a.m., patchy fog before 2 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy, with a steady temperature around 48. Saturday night, a 50% chance of showers mainly before 5 a.m., patchy fog after that, otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 39. On Sunday, we'll see a 40% chance of showers mainly after 11 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 50. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. In the winter of 2022, after years of drought, a huge snowstorm set a new record for the amount of snowfall in the month of December. Then, in March of this year, a series of heavy snowstorms hit Nevada County like a ton of bricks, isolating entire neighborhoods, damaging roofs, dropping power and communication lines. This year, at least so far, has been a different story. Is it because of El Nino? I reached out to Eric Kurth a meteorologist with the National Weather Service out of Sacramento, to learn what I could. Hi, Eric. Thanks for talking with me. I've heard that this weather that we're experiencing, it's warmer and wetter than usual, is because of El Nino. Is that true? We are in an El Nino pattern right now, and that's a climate pattern that's over the Pacific Ocean. And the reason it's important is it can affect uh, even global weather patterns has to do with, you know, the surface temperatures of the ocean actually off of South America. Traditionally, there's easterly trade winds off the west coast of South America that tend to push warm water away and allow cold water to upwell. And when we get an El Nino, those winds are weaker, so it allows warmer water from further west in the Pacific to to come up to South America. Now you might say, well, how does that affect us? Well, that actually drives this uh, storm pattern, like where do we get the the jet stream to be located? It can uh, fuel that jet stream and cause it to shift from more north in terms of the west coast, impacting the Pacific Northwest to affecting more of like Southern California. And that's really the big difference is getting that general pattern that we've seen over the years where 
we get that jet stream bringing moisture into Southern California. Now, it has much less clear effect over Northern California. We're sort of in between those two where like the typical pattern of the jet stream bringing wet weather would go into the Pacific Northwest versus like an El Nino where it would go into Southern California. Sometimes, you know, the El Nino impacts us in terms of being wetter. Sometimes it doesn't. And same thing when the storm track is further north of us, sometimes it will drift over Northern California. So because we're in between, there's there's not really a strong definitive effect of El Nino to Northern California. And I would say even Southern California, it's not a definite, it's a tendency. And we have had some years, even with strong El Ninos, uh, where Southern California ended up not being very wet. And there was the case of like 2015, 2016, where there was a strong El Nino and the that jet pattern did not shift to Southern California uh, the Pacific Northwest was quite wet. So, like I said, it's not a definitive thing. It's not the only pattern out there. But it is certainly something that we monitor. Uh, the Climate Prediction Center looks closely at it. And uh, they project seasonal forecasts and things. And, again, those are sort of tendencies. You know, they're not, they can't give, like, a definite answer whether it's going to be a wet winter or dry winter. Just tendencies from using their models and from using these patterns that we've seen. Last year, we experienced a lot of snow. I believe this year it was in late February that got most of it, or when we got most of it. But in 2022, we were hit with a ton of snow in December. If you'll permit me to just be point blank, what's going on this year? Well, I mean, so far in this wet season, uh, we haven't quite seen the amount of moisture that we did last year. And, uh, I mean, looking at last year, things really got going at the end of December and early January, uh, particularly, you know, that New Year's Eve storm, as as we tend to call it here, where really... Um, dropped quite a bit of rainfall across the area, caused some flooding, and also brought you know some really heavy snow to the mountains. And things really kept going through the months of January, and we saw really heavy snow also in the month of March. So it was really, especially that January, February, and March period, lots of big storms with lots of moisture and also lots of cold air so that we saw like widespread heavy snow. And, uh, you know, sometimes we do get very wet systems, but they tend to be warm, uh, somewhat like this one, which we just saw yesterday and kind of winding down early today. Um, quite a bit of moisture, but not a lot of snow because there was warm air with it. And so snow levels were limited up to the past levels and higher. So there wasn't a lot of snow except for the really higher peaks. Uh, last year, we saw a lot of systems that had a lot of moisture, but also combined with some cold air dropping down from the Gulf of Alaska. And that combination produced, you know, the really deep snowpack. So, so far, we haven't seen those type of systems where, you know, they're getting that combined cold air and moisture. Is it too soon to call it? 
to say, yes, we will be getting a lot of snow this year, or no, we won't? I would say it is too soon to make any assessment of this winter. Uh, a lot of our snowpack really does come up out January, February, March. Um, snow that we get earlier in the month, like in October, November, and especially early December, a lot of that t- doesn't tend to accumulate into the snowpack. A lot of that tends to melt, essentially. Uh, but when we get into later December, January, February, March, um, that's when we tend to see where we get um, snow accumulating and, and getting deeper. So there's still a lot of winter left. And so I think it's too early to make any assessment at this point. I think we'll just have to stay tuned and see how things develop over the next few months. Do you think that people who live in the Sierra Nevada should be on alert? In other words, should people be preparing for another potential heavy snow system like the two years past? Well, I would say people should always be prepared for the potential for getting a strong, wet, snowy system coming in through our winters. And because they're not really predictable, you just can't know, you know, over the long term. But we do have some idea looking out certainly over the course of a week or so, we can give an idea of something like that is coming. Uh, we do have some tools where we can get an idea of something like that's on the way, but it's more on that, you know, looking out about a week or so. So I would say people should stay tuned to those forecasts and, and just if they do hear something about an, uh, a very wet system on the way, they should be prepared uh, for winter impacts, for the potential flooding or heavy snow. And last year, we saw a lot of that. This is a different year. It's starting out different. And I, th- I would say no, no two winters are exactly alike around here. Uh, there always seems to be something interesting, unique. So just be prepared for anything. And especially if you are living up in the mountains, you should be prepared for the potential for a large storm that could make it very difficult to travel, you know, something like we saw last year quite a bit. That could that can happen any winter. Uh, these atmospheric rivers can come. Uh, even during some of the our drought years, we saw a few which caused major impacts. So people should uh, not let their guard down for that. Just always be prepared and just have that those winter supplies and and just stay tuned to the forecast and and just listen to see if there's a potential for, for a big storm coming. Eric Kurth, meteorologist with the National Weather Service, thanks very much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome. Great to talk with you. The Sierra foothills enjoy real seasons, which means that, like we do now, the Nisanon people who lived here before Europeans arrived had to prepare for winter. Al Stoller spoke with Nisanon tribal chair Richard Johnson to learn what that was like. Richard, how did people living in this area deal with winter coming on? Well, one of the first things we'd have to do is make sure we had enough resources for the winter, and that meant food. So we would have been gathering throughout the summer, 
we would have uh, uh, moved up to the upper elevations, or some of our people would have. We would have followed the vegetation as it ripened and grew, and we'd go all the way up to Bear Valley and, and areas like that. We had a very large campsite there in Bear Valley. We had grinding stones there and everything else, so there's very good evidence that we followed the vegetation and the animals, because the animals would have moved up there also the deer and some of the elk. So we would have followed them up and been gathering and drying foods up there and then bringing a lot of it back with us when we moved back to our traditional village, which would have been the Nevada City Rancheria or reservation as time moved on and um, returned to our regular homes. Some of the elders would have stayed back and like our elder men would have gone down to the Yuba River, which was just over the hill. They would have stayed there most of the summer. They would have been gathering eels through a net and uh, then cleaning them and drying them on the big rocks down on the river for the winter food. The other thing that we'd be gathering up is grass seeds. So we would have harvested a ton of grass seeds for the winter stock as well as food to eat we would be gathering acorns in the fall. Black oak trees, which was our favorite acorn and favored by most other people like the, uh, the coastal tribes and the tribes on the other side of the Sierras. I went to a gathering some years ago with folks from all over Northern California. And the big surprise there for me was that different acorns taste different. But you got to remember, the people that live like on uh, uh, in certain spots just got used to eating that style of acorns. But when they got a chance to get black oak acorns, that was that was really a treat for them. So the, it was a trading item that was very important to our people to obtain items uh, that other t- tribal people had in from different parts of California. When we had big get-togethers, that's what they would trade for. They'd bring their supplies up and stuff that they had that we did not, and they would trade for acorns and, and other items like that. One thing you need to realize is that acorn groves belong to the family. So they'd have large acorn groves that they would maintain Black oak trees don't start producing acorns till after about 50 to 60 years. And then on a 60-year oak tree, they only produce, you know, 20, 40, 50 pounds of acorns. So a tree that would be producing a great amount would be like a 200-year-old tree that produced, you know, six, 7,000 acorns. The forest people discovered when they were surveying the forest that there was large groves, old growth, that were rectangular, which meant they had to be placed that way, which would never produce acorns for that generation. It would be the following generations that would benefit from the, the growth of those trees. So The grove itself, in other words, the way the trees were arranged one to another, was a rectangle. Rectangular in shape, yeah, if not square, yeah. So that would be easy to harvest, and you only went to one place. And that was considered the property of the family. So trespassing in those areas was taboo. 
as well as trespassing on the rivers in the fishing spots that was also considered the property of the family. So you did not trespass. That was one of the, the laws of our people was not to trespass. How big was a family? How many generations? How many people? A family consisted of all the male and heirs. All the females were um, with their husbands to their families. A standard family would consist of the grandfather, the, the sons of that grandfather, then the sons of that generation, and then the children. So an average family could consist of 8, 10, 12 people. But as the family grew, they had to increase the shelter. So they would add and extend another 10 feet to their standard structure. It also meant that they had to gather more food and everything else. So we would have been preparing for winter by gathering acorns, grass seeds. Pine nuts was another great food for our people. But it was also important for our babies because that was the first solid food that we'd feed our our babies, a mush that was made of ground-up pine nuts and water. The gray pines were the most important pine nut to our people, but we also used the nut as decorations. We'd grind the ends off, knock out the nut, and then we would lace them into a necklaces or danglies from the ears or from the clothing and bracelets. You mentioned that the elders on the Yuba would catch and dry eel. How else were foods preserved? Well, the acorns would be gathered from underneath the acorn trees, but we had to burn all the grasses and duff and and debris away from underneath the trees early, late summer, very, very early spring, so that we would eliminate the insects as well as clean the area. But we had to eliminate the insects that went up oak trees that would worm the acorns, which would devastate the quality and quantity of acorns that we could harvest. Very often you pick up an acorn off the ground, it's got a little tiny hole in it, and you know that one's gone. Yes. So that was a common practice. The grass fields would be burned every season too, so that would bring another good harvest the following year. The other benefit we'd get from burning underneath the oak trees was a mushroom harvest. When they came into production, we could identify and eat 15 different varieties of mushrooms that our women would gather and dry for the winter. And in the meats, we'd harvest venison, elk, antelope, as well as any animal that basically walked on the ground. You know, we'd eat raccoons and skunks and mountain lions and bobcat very commonly was a food for us. And we would dry those meats also by cutting them into long strips and smoking them and also just drying it over branches and bushes and stuff. And then those would go into our food storage area. Richard, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. I hope we can speak some more about this real soon. I would love to. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Richard Johnson, chair of the Nevada City Nisinan tribe. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller.
And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. The week between Christmas and New Year's has always been one of my favorites. Life goes into delectable slow motion. Despite a few crazy people exchanging presents they didn't like for something else, or scooping up wrapping paper on sale to use next year, everyone's all shopped out for the moment. The advertisers have done their best and are briefly silent. No glossy catalogs arrive in the mail. The New Yorker and Vogue are slim again after their seasonal bloating. The incessant din of supply and demand is hushed as commerce takes an all-too-brief annual break from its vigorous and wily efforts to part each of us from our last remaining dollar. The kids aren't in school and people are out of town, so traffic thins to a trickle. Refrigerators bristle with leftovers, and no one has to run to the grocery store. We just invent new and ever more bizarre concoctions out of celery, yams, and gravy. That is when we even bother to eat. Enough eating takes place in the first three weeks of December to sustain most of us until Easter. What this time of year always makes me think of is the lull in those old black-and-white French movies after a torrid sex scene— when the two lovers lean back into their pillows and light cigarettes. Maybe they talk a little or give each other a look, but mostly it's just smoke curling up from their two galois and a little background music. I myself woke up yesterday to a strange day and snuggled in bed for the first time in my life to watch a video before breakfast. This was so outlandish that I had to race around afterward and do five or six productive things just to prove I hadn't completely lost my moral fibers. Then a sudden attack of sewing came over me, and I got out some blue fabric with ducks on it that I've been meaning to make into potholders for years. Five years, to be exact. Instead of creating new potholders from scratch, I covered the two ratty ones I had, and now they're so elegant and pristine, I hesitate to use them. After the manic stitching fit, I calmed down again and sat on the sofa, reading one of my Christmas presents, a biography of the poet Anne Bradstreet. In between forays out to the woodpile and stir-frying turkey surprise, I've been dipping into this book all week. I've also been wearing my new Christmas socks and creating my own lattes with a fabulous milk-fizzling gizmo. If it weren't for making a living, this would be the life, I tell you. There's something delicious about not being on a schedule. That kind of goofing around time is incredibly nourishing, as well as covering potholders, which was about 2,912th on my to-do list. I had enough spaciousness in my head to write a poem. If you've had a languorous week like this, also remember it when the time comes to think up New Year's resolutions and don't make any. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City, 
and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's the KVMR News Magazine for this week. KVMR gets support from Natural Selection and Mother Truckers, locally owned community grocery stores offering organic and natural foods including locally grown produce, wine, beer, plus supplements and bulk foods, Mother Truckers on the Ridge, and Natural Selection East Main Street in Grass Valley. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great weekend.